That's all right. We haven't begun yet. You can clang them around. <laughs> well, bless your little priority straight hearts. Here we are. <laughs> Reminds me of the preacher who uh, said, uh, you know, everybody was talking about their small congregations. And uh, um, one uh, preacher was saying, boy, my congregation is so small, da 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 you know, doing the Johnny Carson routine. And another preacher was saying, boy, my congregation is so small, and, and topping him. And a third preacher says, well... He said, I think I got you both beat. My congregation is so small that when I say dearly beloved, I get embarrassed and so does she. <laughs> so from this, uh, from this beginning, <clears throat> we'll go ahead. Let's, let's have a moment of prayer. Father, we thank you that you um, have given us a heart for your word. And that you have sought to communicate yourself to us through the Holy Scripture. We would now ask you to indwell our hearts with your Holy Spirit. That we might correctly interpret into sound doctrine what you are telling us in this book of Romans. And we would ask that you would make this truth personal and gripping in a way that will change our lives. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I got up here and noticed that I had brought the second sheet of my notes, but have not brought the first sheet of my notes. So we will uh, we'll just wing it, all right? First of all, let me tell you a little bit about the book of Romans. Uh, Paul wrote it on his third missionary journey, and he wrote it uh, for a certain purpose. Paul was a strategist. He was a real smart cookie. And as being a Pharisee, he thought always in a pharisaical manner. Now, pharisaical is not, uh, you know, that's been, that's, that word has uh, come into kind of a uh, derogatory uh, sense but the Pharisees were very logical, very organized people, and very sincere people. And Paul had a heart. God had implanted in his heart a visionary um, burden for the West. And when I say West, I'm talking about Spain and the uttermost parts of the earth, you know. And he wanted to go to Spain. So therefore, Paul needed a base of missions to where he could keep in contact with the East and still stretch out toward the west. And that would logically be the city of Rome. And therefore, Paul wanted to go to Rome. He had not been to Rome at the, at the writing of this letter. This happened anywhere from the year 53 to 58 A.D., probably closer to 58 A.D. He was on his third missionary journey. He had a job to do, to finish, and that was to take the, an offering taken up by the Gentile churches to the Church of Jerusalem. Now, the Church of Jerusalem, of course, was the mother church of uh, Christianity, but it was a very poor church. And, uh, and Paul 
wanted to present this offering personally for two reasons. It was, it was important for two reasons. First of all, he was taking along with him um, uh, representation from the Gentile churches. And that would be a show of unity. You know, Paul was a person who had a heart for the Gentiles, but even back at this time, um, even after God had said, yeah, go ahead, there was still kind of a, an uneasiness about the mixture of Jewish folks and Gentile folks into the same religion. Well, Paul was bringing this offering for the relief of mainly Jewish Christians from Gentile Christians. And so this would be a real show of unity. It would also, the second reason was, demonstrate how we are to be charitable with a world mindset. That was Paul's mindset. He was a, he was a global Christian, or at least as, as much as the globe they knew back then. And, uh, and so this was charity beyond the borders and cross-culturally. So Paul himself wanted to be a part of this contingent that went to the Jerusalem church. And then he would go on to Rome to visit Rome. So he had not been to Rome yet. And, and that is characteristic of this letter from Paul um, in that this letter is different from his others because Paul does not know the people yet. And Paul has not become embroiled in any of the situations yet. Now, when he's writing to Ephesus and when he's writing to the churches of Galatia, the surrounding churches, circular letters, especially when he's writing to Corinth, he knows the situations and he starts preaching at them, okay? He just addresses the peculiar problems in those churches. He doesn't know what the peculiar problems in the church at Rome are. So this gives him a chance to be tremendously objective and put down what is the theological textbook of the New Testament. You see, when you're not speaking to a certain situation, you tend to speak in fundamentals or transferable concepts, okay? You do not, you do not limit or parochialize your speech. You, you, you tend to, to speak in concepts that would be valid for anybody. And therein lies the value of, of the book of, of Romans. Now, let me just say one more thing. The book of Romans is a very complex book. Very, uh, it is structured neatly, but it's because it's, it, it's full of transferable concepts. Because it is full of the fundamentals, they go way deep. So what we will be doing is spending a lot of time plummeting the depths of the basic concepts of Christianity. And when you get done with this study, if you have been hungry to learn, I was just listening to Fred Price for a come. Frederick Price is a black preacher out on the West Coast, and this guy is great. You know, I, he, you know, we, we disagree a little bit theologically, but I just love this guy. And he, and he was talking about how, uh, you know, if, if you leave here and you haven't learned, it's because you haven't been hungry. You know, you've got to be hungry. So if you're hungry for this, what will happen to you is at the end of this course, you will be able to discuss with anybody the fundamentals of the Christian faith and at practically any level. All right? Okay. Let's start.
chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ. Now, bondservant, the word in Greek is doulos, and what it means is, um, well, it depends on who it's addressed to. The Greeks could not perceive of any one person being owned lock, stock, and barrel from another person because, or by another person, not that they didn't have slavery, they did. But the Greeks were conceptual people. And the concept of slavery could be separated from the person who was a slave. I mean, they had the ability to do that. The Semitic people did not have the, the ability to do that. Uh, uh, Semite thinking is uh, um, experiential thinking. It is, it is uh, I mean, it's no good if it's not connected to a person. And so therefore, when he said the bondservant, what, what the Hebrews would hear is they would hear absolute ownership. That is, um, and this is not a new term to them. Moses was termed a bondservant or a slave in Joshua 1, 2, I think it is. Joshua chapter 1, 2. Joshua was termed the same thing in the book of Joshua chapter 24. Jeremiah was termed the same thing. And so these are, are this is a term that has been linked with a prophet throughout the years, prophets throughout the years. Therefore, Paul is placing himself in absolute ownership of Jesus Christ, but at the same time, to the Jewish readers, he is putting himself in very good company indeed. Because these were terms that were applied to Moses, Joshua, Jeremiah, and some of the other folks, Amos, some of the other great prophets. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called as an apostle. Now, this is an important concept that we will come back to later. And some of these, some of these we'll hit several times because they come from several different angles. This is the ultimate of being called, and, and we, we will sense it in the word obligation in just a few verses. Paul's business of being an apostle had nothing to do with him. My business as a preacher has nothing to do with me. Your ministry, if you know it exactly yet, that is, why did God put me in this world? I was talking with somebody today on the phone, and they were, and they were just coming down to the place where they said, I've come to the place where I'm talking it over with a friend, and I just want to know, bottom line, what am I here for? Why am I here? God has a purpose for my life. I want to know what it is. See? Well, this is where the word called is so important. Because in a worldly way, you can train yourself for the desires of your heart, and you can um, kind of call yourself into a certain field. And that's what you do as a kid. You know, what do you want to be when you grow up? Well, I want to be a cowboy. Well, I want to be, you know... You know, I want to be a nurse, and I want to be a, you know, a teacher, and I want to be a, you know. In Christianity, God has made certain people for certain things. And our great adventure is to figure out our calling. 
Now, everyone is called to come to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And when Jesus says in chapter 17 of John, I chose you, you did not choose me. That's what he's talking about. I, through no accord of your own, have you been called into the kingdom of God. But there are people who are absolutely called into certain aspects of Christianity. And one of the ways you discover this is through the examination of your spiritual gifts, but they have to be confirmed by experience until that is cemented in your heart. There are certain people who are called into certain activities that God has made them for from the time they were knit together in their mother's womb. And this is what Paul is saying. I was called before I ever knew who God was. Called to be a certain thing for God. And this happens to be an apostle. Now, see, this is of no credit to Paul. It's not to, it's, God does not, God does not, when God calls, it's no credit to a person. I mean, it's just like, you know, God could use a horse if he wanted to use a horse in the same place. It doesn't matter, you know. It is of absolutely of no credit to me that I am a pastor in church. Absolutely none. God just happened in his plan to decide that this was the best thing for his plan, and I'm responding to it. Um, um, you will probably hear this again. Um, we were discussing this week in the elders meeting. Uh, we, we, were, we were talking about whether or not um, there would be women elders in the church here, all right? And what we decided was this. We decided that at least the Spirit's leading now is, no, there will not, because as we read Scripture, the, description, the scriptural description of an elder is for a man, and that God's ideal plan is for men to take spiritual responsibility to be spiritual leaders. Now, what does that say about qualifications? Absolutely nothing. Anybody who says to me, I can think of a dozen women that are more qualified to be elders in this church than the six elders there are right now, I can look at them and say, I can think of two dozen. Okay? It doesn't say anything about qualifications. What it says is that we are following God's call as closely as we can discern it. So there's absolutely no categorization of ability or qualification here. There is simply an obedience to God's call as we hear it. And so that's what um, God's job is for us. It says very plainly in Scripture that God uses the least many times so that he can get more glory. Good heavens, think of Gideon and the dog lappers. You know, the least God could have done was taken the people who weren't sucking up the water like dogs. But he, you know, he, he put them down to the place where there was no doubt in anybody's mind that God was working through that church. Sometimes I, I get the feeling he does the same with us elders. <laughs> you take one look at the elders and say, man, there's no doubt about what God's in control of the church. No, I, it's, it's just that 
You've got to settle yourself into the place where you are content to follow God no matter what your perceptions of ability are. All right? And that goes for your perceptions of your own ability as well as your perceptions of other people's ability. Called as an apostle, as an apostle, set apart for the gospel. Now let me just, uh, this is on my first sheet and I forget them all, but there are, there are three ways that we are set apart by God. Basically, three ways he sets us apart, or four ways, I'm sorry, four ways. One is that we are set apart by the word of God. We are set apart from ignorance of sin by the word of God. We are separated to an extent by or from sin by the word of God. We'll get into that a little bit later about how the law makes us know what sin is, makes us identify it, even though we've already in our heart known what it is. We couldn't name it and so on and so forth. All right? So the word of God sets us apart from sin. And there is a certain power that the word of God has in itself. Get into that later too. God the Father sets us apart for preparation to Jesus, readies us for Jesus Christ. God the Father readies us for Jesus Christ. This is in First Thessalonians like 5, 12 or something like that. Anyhow, but it says God himself has gotten you ready to receive Jesus Christ. So God the Father, through his prophets, has, prepar- has, has set us apart from the rest of mankind in preparing us to hear about Jesus Christ. God the Son sets us apart unto righteousness, unto a right relationship with God. All right? Nobody else can do that. Nobody else can do that. No other function of God can do that. Only God the Son can separate us unto a right relationship with God the Father. And then God the Holy Spirit separates us and prepares us for the work, empowers us for the service to God. Again, Nobody else can do that. Nothing else can do that. So we are separated from sin for Jesus Christ, for a right relationship with God, for righteousness or sinlessness or spotlessness or whatever, how you want to call it, for service. Those are the three separations. And unless those separations occur, the walk will be without power, all right? Now, there are some people who get stuck at some of those separation points. Some people get stuck, and these are the people that we are, we are you know, working. The first people, we, we, we work for missions, and we want to make sure that they hear the Word of God. When we contribute to Wycliffe Bible uh, translators, when we, can, we contribute to New Tribes Mission, when we, when we work through a missionary... We want those people to have that word of God because they need to be separated from sin. See? Sin destroys life. And it's not that they're going to 
You know, we, we, I don't sit around and worry about people burning in hell. Good heavens. But, but I do worry about people who, are, who absolutely have no assurance of salvation. So, and, and destroying their own lives with sin. And so, you know, that's, that's where people can get stuck if they don't read the Word. Secondly, if they don't, if they aren't, if, if they don't listen to God, if they, if they are shut or closed to God or hard-hearted to God, they'll never receive Jesus Christ. They will, they'll believe in God, you know, hey, no problem, you know, okay. I know there's a Bible, I know there's a God, but they will not be prepared to accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. They will not be separated from theists. Theists are somebody who simply recognize the existence of a supreme being. That's, that's what the man on the street is. You believe in God? Well, I believe there's a supreme being. That person has not been separated by God for Jesus Christ yet. Jesus Christ, some people get stuck at the Jesus Christ stage where they, all right, they, they, they really believe in God, their heart is, they really kind of want to follow God, but they don't have a right relationship with God. They, they, they do not, they are not even talking same ballpark, all right? I mean, it's like, okay, I believe in God, you tell me what to do because I'm a good person, and they'll get stuck right there. And the same with the thing with the Holy Spirit. Most Christians get stuck at this separation stage. It's kind of like a rocket, you know, with the different phases. I just thought of that. Kind of like phase one, you know, it blows off where you, and, and the phase two and, and launches you into higher orbits. Most Christians get stuck with this last phase here, and they do not get separated by the power of the Holy Spirit for service. Because they, they, they accept Christ, and they've got the Holy Spirit. I mean, they're locked together with the Holy Spirit. But they do not get that extra blast, or they are not filled with the Spirit of God so that they can have all they need for what God wants them to be. And that separation is necessary. All right, so we will talk about those things as we go along, especially in, uh, in chapter 8, we're going to be talking about uh, being filled with the Holy Spirit, what that means. And then set apart for the gospel of God. Now, I, this word really struck me, and I want, I want if, we're, if we're going to talk about your basics here, I want you to have this information. You may... You may have it already. If you do, just ignore me. It struck me that the word was not for the gospel of Christ, but for the gospel of God. Gospel means good news. All right? It comes from two English words, God spell, which is where the play came from, you know, God spell. Gospel means good news or message of. Good message. And what you have to have before you can have a gospel of God is a belief that God exists. And what I want to do for you tonight, this afternoon, is present to you three theological proofs for the existence of God. Now let me say, or three, th I'm sorry, I goofed it already. Three theological arguments for the existence of God. You can have all kinds of arguments how, why God doesn't exist. Let me give you three theological arguments why 
God does exist. Now, let me say along with this, there is no way that you can... What is that? Is that the turn thing up there? Good grief. Okay. There is no... <laughs> I wonder if we'll have any cars left out there. Yeah, really. There is no way that you can or, or ever will be able to prove the existence of God. Because you know what? If you could, faith wouldn't be necessary, would it? Josh and I were riding along in the car the other day, and he said, you know, faith is really hard, isn't it, Dad? And I said, why? And he said, because you can't prove it. And I said, yeah, it is. It really is hard because we are used to things that you can set down and demonstrate again and again and again and again so you don't have to have faith. But God has given us the toughest thing to do. That is to let us believe in something we can't prove. And it is hard work. So these are three, not three proofs of God's existence, three arguments for God's existence, and you will never, ever be able to come to the island of faith by proof. You'll never be able to do it. God intended it that way, and the only benefits of faith are by taking the leap of faith. You've just got to say, when it comes right down to it, instead of not believing, I'm going to believe. That's the bottom line of it. And there are just some people who are not willing to take that leap. Okay, let me just share these with you. The first one... Good heavens, where is it? Where is it? Oh, there it is. Good. First one is the ontological argument for the existence of God. And basically, ontological means being. Now, in the, 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 the famous person that brought this forth was St. Anselm. And this, at one time, was almost uh, poo-pooed by the uh, intellectuals, but it's making a comeback this day. Some of the smartest theologians in the world cannot disprove this argument for the existence of God, or cannot do it. And what this argument says, basically, is this. God is that than which no greater can exist. Write that down. God is that than which no greater can exist. If something greater could exist, the first thing wouldn't be God. The second thing would be, right? So it's simply God is that than which no greater can exist. Now put this sentence right after it. Existence is greater than non-existence. The attribute of existence is greater than the, than the attribute of non-existence. 
Therefore, God must exist. All right? If you, if God is greater than, than, if God is that, then which no greater can be conceived, that than which no greater be, can be conceived, and you can conceive of a God who exists, then God must exist. Think about that. Go home and sleep on that. Second, cosmological. The cosmological argument for the existence of God goes like this <clears throat> that the results, I'm sorry that the cause must be at least as great as the results. The cause of something must be at least as great as the results. <clears throat> if you are writing with a pencil, uh, you know that that um, pencil is made up of wood, and lead and have a, has a racer on the end that's is made up of rubber also. And you know that that pencil is contingent. That's another argument for this. The contingency argument for the existence of God is contingent upon the cause and effect of someone who has put together those and those ingredients being put together. All right? Someone putting together those ingredients and those ingredients being put together. Therefore, the effect of the pencil must have a cause at least as great as itself. The cause of me is my parents. The cause of them is their parents. And so on and so forth until you trace it all the way back to what? a cause, a prime mover. Now, if you think about that, if this universe is an effect, then it must have a cause at least as great as itself. And that cause would be God. What is even more marvelous is that Scripture says it is, was made out of nothing. Now there's a law of nature summarized by the Latin ex nihilo nihil fit which means nothing comes out of nothing. Nothing comes out of nothing. Which is the, is, is the negative way of saying what I just told you. But scripture says we came out of nothing. Now look at how huge that makes the prime mover. Why did this thing just click, Joe? Huh?
Oh, mine. Oh, I see. No, that's not it. Oh, well. Oh, well. I don't, I don't care. Okay. <clears throat> Give me, let me tell you teleological. 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 Teleos means purpose. Or that for which something was made. Or the end. The end. Let's put. And this argument goes something like this. Let me just give you the example, the traditional example of this. If you are walking along the desert, walking in the desert, and you look down and you see a watch laying there, ticking, you can pick it up and you can come to two conclusions, basically two conclusions. One you can come to the conclusion that over hundreds of thousands of years, a piece of metal got formed and shined itself up and, and somehow got cut into a circle by the wind, maybe just rubbing the edges off, and laid there in the desert. And then... Lo and behold, another hundred thousand years, another piece of metal got crinkled up into like a little spring. And then another one, and then a gear, and then a this, and then that, and then, and then these just blew into this thing without any other sand in it. And then, and then, and lo and behold, there was a white round thing that came into existence that just, you know, and then just fell on top of all of those gears and that spring and everything and, and then paint just fell out of the sky and, and, and fell into the configurations one, two, three, four, five and just exactly the same way around and then lo and behold there were two little old things that just kind of fell on the axis that, that, that start, could go around and, 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 and then pretty soon thousands and thousands of years later why a, a, a a piece of what we know as glass kind of formed itself and blew itself and, and cleared itself and rolled along the desert and got laid right on top of that and sealed itself and then it, and somehow the wind wound it up and there was a watch. Or you could say, here's a watch. There must be a watchmaker. Now you can assume the same thing about people if you like. However, the assumption about people is more dangerous than the assumption about a watch because the human eye is a million times more complex than a watch. Now you can say that just over hundreds of thousands of years a human eye got linked up to a human brain which is infinitesimally more complicated than a human eye, which is millions of times more complicated than a, a watch. Or you can say, here's a person, there must be a people maker. Alright? That is the teleological argument for the existence of God. It is, in other words, it is too much to bite off and chew 
that we are coincidence. It would be easier to bite off and chew that that watch got formed by itself over thousands of years than it is that we have come into existence because we are so much more complicated, so much more sophisticated, so much more complex than just a simple watch. Okay? Now, those are the three arguments for the existence of God. And if you want to know more about those, I've got, I've got them, you know, outlined better in books. But I want you to be able, when you are called upon, when people say, you know, I really, nobody's ever given me an intelligent argument for the existence of God. You can say, I haven't got a proof, but I do have some, some things that would say you are at least as intelligent to believe in God as to not believe in God. All right? That's a, you know, that's a, that's a terrible thing. A lot of kids go to college. And this is, this is a tough thing. We have not schooled our kids in ways that will let them look intelligent in their Christian faith. We send our kids to college, and they have maybe, maybe a third-grade-level education religiously. And they go into these PhDs, running these courses, who have a spirit about as far from God as east is from west, and they get totally torn up. That's what happened to my wife. She went to Ball State, and the chairman of the religion department at Ball State was an atheist. And she got him for Old Testament, and she was so strapped because he made fun of people's beliefs. I mean, people would come out with these statements of faith. He would laugh, and then, like Eddie, the, bu the bully, would just pick them apart piece by piece. And she would come back, and we would figure this thing out, and then she would go back armed to the teeth, all right, in front of the rest of the class, and then he'd say, well, what about this? And then she'd come back, and then she'd go back, and so on and so forth. And the thing was, the bottom line was, she was raised in a Methodist church, had a string of Sunday school pins down to her knee, and never learned how to be intelligent with her faith. Never. And I worry the same thing about our kids, about the kids in this church. When they go out in this world, everybody else is thinking at Ph.D. level in all the worldly things, and here our kids are still in, well, yeah, I've memorized three Bible verses, and I kind of know the story of the, you know, and all of this kind of stuff. They don't know why they believe it. And if somebody argues them, argues with them, what are they going to say? They're going to get torn limb from limb. And I would like for you to be able to teach your children. I would also like for you to be able to give an account. You know, the scripture says, be ready to give an account for the faith that is within you. I want you to be able to give an account for why it is at least as intelligent to believe in God as it is not to believe in God. We owe that to ourselves. And we owe that to God. You talk about smart. <laughs> okay. Okay, we've got uh, basically 15 minutes. 
which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Now, I want you to know this. God, from the very beginning, used people, used people, and the people were recorded in the Scriptures. Now, sometimes we get those two kind of messed up. We get the Scriptures before the people. But let me tell you something. If someone has not seen the gospel lived, scriptures are going to be empty. God prepared people for his truth through people that are recorded in the scriptures. Um, let's, let's talk about Ruth and Naomi. Let's talk about relationship evangelism. Let's talk about a friendship that was so strong and a faith so devout and a love so deep that when Ruth looked at Naomi, because of her love for Naomi, she could say, whether thou goest, I will go, and your God will be my God, and your people will be my people. You know how people get brought into the faith? It's not by reading scripture. Through people, through people. God has prophets, and you're some of them. You know that, 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 that uh, song, You're the Only Jesus. Yeah, some will ever see. You know, you're the only scriptures some will ever read. It is absolutely critical for you to understand that it is not the Bible's job to convert people. It is God's job to convert people through your example. And there is no other bottom line. You are it. Now, the Bible will separate them from sin. You can't do that. And the Bible will tell of Jesus Christ. But it's your relationship with them that's going to attract them. And that's how God has always worked. It's never been any other way. God is not, you know, God had a relationship with Abraham long before Moses ever got the Ten Commandments. And he had a, he had a, and, and, and somehow we got that all turned, the Pharisees got it all turned around too. You know, they started concentrating on the scriptures and forgot that the relationship comes first. And only through the relationship can you rightly interpret the scriptures. Okay, so God has always used people. He promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scripture concerning his son who was born a descendant of David according to the flesh. Now, here is, um, here is an important point at least. For those of you who know the Scriptures, you will know that David is the Jewish symbol of God's sovereign power. David is the highest uh, epitome. Uh, now, that's, that's a redundancy, isn't it? David is the epitome of Jewish power in the world. It was under David that the kingdoms were united. It was under David that nobody questioned that the Jews were right, <laughs> the right ones. Um, and it was only after David's death that the demise of, Israel, uh, of, of Judaism began, or of the, of, the, of the Jewish theocracy began. And the Jews always had in their heart that whoever came 
would be like David because that was the highest they had to point to. And so whenever they, when they mentioned the lineage of Jesus Christ, they mentioned David. Some, some of them go all the way back to Adam. It depends on if they're, talking to, if they're approaching Jews or they're, or they're going toward the universal stance. But see, the thing that says when you say he's a son of David, the thing that rings in a Hebrew's mind is right away pride and competency and power and God's sovereignty and God's smiling on people and so on and so forth. So he was, a, he, was, he was from David according to the flesh. And it's also important for you to know that Jesus was human according to the flesh. We're going to see according to the spirit in a minute. But Jesus had human parentage, parentage, Matthew 2, 11. I'll give you a bunch of scriptures here if you want them. He developed as a normal human being, Luke 2, 52. Um, now this says he waxed strong and grew in favor of God and men, but, but there's, you know, some of you will get, a, will get um, a hold of the Apocrypha. And you'll start reading that, and and uh, you know these. Uh, it tickles me these uh, these commercials come out. The lost books of the Bible have been discovered, you know, and that's, that, you know this, this this apocrypha stuff starts selling like hotcakes, you know. Um, and and you will read if you read the, the apocrypha, you will read some real strange stuff about Jesus because they try to account for the childhood we've never heard about. And you will read about stuff like, you know, Jesus is playing with the other kids, you know, and they're making, they're making mud uh, birds and, uh, or clay birds, you know, and all the other kids are trying. Jesus makes his and throw his, throws his up and his flies away, you know. And, uh, and uh, Jesus is working with his father in, in the uh, carpenter shop, and uh, um, he cuts a board too short, and he feels real, feels real bad about it, so... So his dad gets on one end and he gets on the other end and they stretch it to the right, right length and so on and so That is not the gospel, okay? Those, that is not scriptural canon or the measuring stick. Those are some, simply some, some legends that make us, let us know how richly people believed in the power of Jesus Christ. And if you read those things, you will get the idea that Jesus never really was human. That's wrong. Jesus was human. And the Bible documents that he was brought up in a normal household, that he was hungry, Matthew 4, 2, when he was out in the uh, desert, that he was thirsty, John nineteen twenty eight. that he was weary, John 4, 6, that he wept, of course all of you have memorized this one, <laughs> John eleven thirty five, and Jesus wept shortest Bible verse, and that he was tempted in every manner as we are, Hebrews 4.15. Jesus was human. Now let's go on. Who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead according to the Spirit of holiness. Now, we have one verse saying according to the flesh and another verse according to the Spirit. Now what, God, what, what Paul is doing is he is foreshadowing the theological balance. Very, very sophisticated uh, letter here. Foreshadowing the theological issues that he's going to be talking about. 
He's talking about a balance between the flesh and the spirit. Now, let me just talk about, I had a little girl come up to me um, a week ago and ask, how could Jesus be both God and man? And, and, and I said, let me get back to you on that. <laughs> There's all these people standing around. She says, could I ask you a question? I said, yeah. How could you, Jesus be both God and man? Um, um, and I said, I really want to tell you, I want to sit down with you and talk about this. And she said, okay. And she walked away. I forgot who she was. If anybody knows who this girl is, let me know who she is. I'm really embarrassed because I don't want to break that promise. But let me tell you a little bit about that, all right? Or let me just share with you some thoughts. First of all, the balance of how Jesus could be both God and man will never be fully known by us. It is a mystery. There is a place, do you believe it? In faith for things that can never be fully known by a finite mind. If there was not, God would not be God. He'd just be another person, another part of the universe. So there is a place that no one will ever stand, uh, ever understand. And this is one of those places, how God can be 100% man and 100% God. Having said that, though, no other formula is adequate to all the Bible says. And here's some of the ways you can explain it to kids, all right? Now, you, you can go through the... Through the uh, um, the old, well, no, never mind. Don't do that. Just explain it like this. Um, saw this done one day at the beach. I was sitting at the beach, and uh, this, this kid comes running up with a bucket. You know you have these buckets at the beach. And, and uh, it, you could tell they were from the north, and, uh, <laughs> because so was I. They came, back, they came down just as white. I mean, it looked like the Casper family. And, and, and came down, and this little girl had, you could tell her parents had been pumping her up about actually seeing the ocean, you know? And she ran down there. Sharks, watch out for sharks! And uh, by this time, they were like five feet from the shore, and she came up on the, up on the wet, where the wet and the dry sand just kind of start to separate. And she said, I heard her say, Look, I've got the ocean. Now, what she was saying was really true, wasn't it? But it wasn't the whole truth, was it? When we say that Jesus Christ is God, we're saying roughly what that little girl said about that bucket of ocean water. I've got God here. Because Jesus Christ was wall-to-wall God. All right? And he was of the same essence of God. But he was not all of God. He was all God, but he was not all of God. And so therefore, the people who say, how can Jesus be God if he prays? Who in the world is he praying to? Have not quite caught the concept that an essence can be separated from itself and still keep in communication with the rest of what it is. Plus, 
there was a voluntary vulnerability when Jesus Christ came down here. That is that Jesus chose, or God chose, to have some limitations in Christ when he came down here. And that accounts for his need for prayer, just like we have need for prayer. So when people try to, when, when youngsters or even people that you talk to say it's impossible, you know, you're either one or the other, Paint can't be both, use that little illustration and that might explain to them the balance. Okay, Jack? Okay, go ahead. That's right. That's right. And we grope, and that's where the mystery comes in, you know. You can say, Jesus had all the power of God, you know. Um, but, you know, for, for our purposes, the, the, the good thing about that is that it is in a container. And, and kids or people who are, who are fleshly-minded have to picture a container. And if you, if you say, you know, if, if you carry the analogy, which is not good even further... You could say, we might be a drop, but he was wall-to-wall, you know. But, but even, even with that, you know, we are made in the image, image of God, the imago dei. But, but even with that, we are not even in the same ballpark. So, Jack's right. You know, the, the, the earthly illustrations we use are terribly inadequate. And that's why half the time from our kids we get this. You can't even explain this to me, and you expect me to believe it? <laughs> you know, we get one of those. And the answer is, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's kind of an embarrassed, yeah. Okay, uh, we can stop there for today. I wanted to get the first 17 verses done, but obviously we didn't get the first 17 verses done.